0: This is the Ask a podcast series from Solar Power World. Welcome to another edition of Ask a I'm Kathy Zipp, Senior Editor of Solar Power World. The worlds of solar and energy storage are coming together more closely all the time, So so is this podcast. Today I'm excited to speak with Kelly Speaks-Bachman, CEO at Energy Storage Association. ESA is the trade association for the energy storage industry and the leading voice for companies that develop and deploy the advanced energy storage systems that support the power grid that we rely on every day. So I'm excited to learn more about the woman behind that voice of energy storage. So Kelly, thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you, Kathy, so much for having me.
0: Sure, absolutely. So I like to get a sense for people's backgrounds. I know you're in D.C. now. Where are you originally from? From the Midwest, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. Go Bucks,
1: as my mother would say. Um, but I was born in West Virginia, so I grew up in a in a lot of different places throughout the middle of the country.
0: Excellent. I feel like most people I talk to are from the Midwest, so. Being in Cleveland, here, I always <laughs> love to hear that. Tell me a little bit about, you know, I think college is an interesting time when people are trying to think about what they want to be and what they want to do. So, can you talk about when you were looking at schools, where you went, and kind of how you decided what your major would be? Oh goodness, I, I actually love that question. It mimics a little bit the sort of passage
1: of my of my career. Even I knew what I didn't want to do, and so I kind of focused around that, like. I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, and I didn't want to be landlocked anymore. So I looked at both coasts for schools in terms of location. And I knew I didn't want to take too many of the sort of subjective courses in college. So I decided to go to a math and science route. So I went to engineering because then you could get out of like a lot of the liberal arts
0: classes. I wish I had known that.
1: (laughs) So I studied mechanical engineering at Boston University. And it was, it was a lot of fun. It, was, you know, it wasn't necessarily that I wanted to be an engineer, but I, I wanted to have a right and wrong answer. Little, I, you can tell by that response how little I knew about actual engineering when I went into it. I wanted to know that there was a right answer and a wrong answer, and I wanted to avoid the gray of like, writing long papers about my opinion on something, which is so ironic and funny now that I'm in... This industry <laughs> that uh, covers policy for energy. I started mechanical engineering, and uh, I graduated and uh, went straight to school. I was thinking originally I wanted to be a patent attorney, but by the time I got through school, I just kind of was finished with school, and I wanted to just go out and get a job. And I got my first job in uh, as an HVAC engineer back in Columbus, Ohio.
0: Oh, so you did end up coming back home. I did. I did, for a little bit. I'm eager to, to learn where you went from there, but I, I wanted to say it is pretty neat. It's almost like you went to college for philosophy, <laughs> a major that fit a philosophy that you wanted. I mean, engineering, I, I think it's so great. That's something that I don't have in this industry. You know, I, I come from a journalism background, so I, I know to ask the right questions, but I don't have that technical background. So do you find that it's, it's useful to have that in what you're doing today?
1: Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's, it's really helpful in so many of the different positions I've held throughout my career. I feel like it's not that, not that studying engineering teaches you facts, but it teaches you how to think. It teaches you a process of the scientific method of how to figure out problems, how to break them down into smaller chunks and then step by step be able to solve a bigger problem. And that is far and above the biggest gift to me that, that was engineering. Now, I call myself a reformed engineer. I don't practice it in any way, shape, or form anymore. But I do have a way of thinking of things in a matrix. I've worked with a lot of lawyers in, in my career, and you know, lawyers kind of go A, B, C, D, all the way to Z. They kind of go linearly. And I think engineering is much more matrix-driven, multiple inputs, trying to get to the right answer as best you can get given the number of inputs and the accuracy of the input that you have. So it's really more of a way of thinking than necessarily specifically learning the laws of thermodynamics.
0: You're actually convincing me to take engineering classes, which is something that I never had in mind before, uh, but there's a lot more to it than, uh, than what it seems. So that's, that's very cool. So then how did you get into the energy industry once you did graduate? You, you said you were working in Columbus, Ohio for a while.
1: Yeah, so doing HVAC and plumbing for this group, and this is kind of funny. One of the partners came up to me and said, you know, if you keep this up, in 10 years, you could become partner. And I thought, oh my gosh, I, I, I got to get out of here. It wasn't something I wanted. And I knew there was something like my favorite part about my job was negotiating leases for clients rather than sitting over the plans to you know build out the HVAC or build out the plumbing design. And so I know I didn't necessarily want to do that. And at the same time, I was – helping one of the senior partners on a project to um, evaluate the life cycle cost of an ice storage facility for a commercial building. And that was really cool, like learning about how the operations can be saved with off your utility bill. So I started getting the initial ideas of this. And at the same time, a friend of mine called my former college roommate, and she was an electrical engineer, and she worked for Wellesley College. And she said to me, Hey, I'm, we're gonna buy these engines for a cogen plant, because that's what CHP was called back in those days. And she says, We're gonna do a cogen plant, but we're buying it from this Austrian company called Yenbacher And they don't have a US presence. So you wanna come out and try this out with me back up in Boston and we'll see if we can start up this little company called Yenbacher and be the US subsidiary of this Austrian company. And I jumped at the idea. I just thought oh my gosh, I get to work in energy. And this is like a new burgeoning, interesting thing. I get to think about efficiency. It was just like a whole world that was opened up to me. So I said, yes. And I started out just by going to trade shows in the summer. And then I was hired as the project engineer for the new subsidiary, but we didn't have any projects to engineer. And so I had to go into sales. And then we didn't have any materials or we didn't have a market plan. So I started getting into market development and business development and sort of the more strategic side of this. And it kind of all came from that, working for a co-generation gas engine, landfill gas to energy engine manufacturer.
0: That's so interesting. It's cool that you got to learn so many parts of the business, the marketing and the sales. Those are all wonderful skills to have no matter where you go. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And a friend of mine asked me about my writing style, for example. And and
1: I learned a lot in trying to translate the German English into American English or British English or, you know, however we were trying to structure that. So I learned a lot about communication and that it's really just kind of engineering of words to be able to say things succinctly and to be able to be persuasive and factual and credible. That was like a A big turning point for me that I realized that it's not always about what the right answer is, it's how do you build your case. And that's when I knew I was totally bitten by the clean energy bug. And by clean energy, I meant the landfill gas to energy projects we were working on. We did wastewater treatment plants from digester gas projects. We did combined heat and power where you can get like. 80, 90% efficiency, whereas you normally get like a 30 to 40% efficiency from straight electricity generation. with was all of that kind of fun stuff that that started me on this path.
0: That's so wonderful. And so I know at one point, you know, you were at Sun Edison, you were at the Maryland Energy Administration. Can you tell me more about that?
1: Yeah. A number of positions are in and around um, combined heat and power and then morphing into renewables brought us to the point where the electric industry was deregulating. Solar has been around for a really long time. It began really taking hold in a, in a real scaled way um, with the dawn of electric deregulation, where customers could choose other options, and it was really exciting. Before I went into SunEdison, I worked for a company, United Technologies, with their fuel cell business, but also working with the corporate on – how to figure out how to get to net zero energy buildings. And that was really fun, but we were looking and studying what are the real what are the real barriers to getting to net zero energy. And it's really it was at that time all about the finance. And that's when I learned about who Sun Edison was and that they had come up with this really cool model of doing a PPA for solar. Nobody had ever done that before. Mm-hmm. And so I was one of the first fifty employees to join Jigger Shaw and his team to to make that become real big scale and it was a lot of fun. So I played in this been in the solar side, I've been in again the biogas kind of stuff, firming wind with gas generation with a company called Wartzilla. And all of this kind of led me to it this was all private industry and it kind of led me into the foray of public service in that I was hearing about, I was living in Maryland at the time where I still live. There was a RPS standard that was set forth by the the legislature. And I saw that MEA had a position open for uh, Director of Clean Energy for the state. And I had had experience in all these different areas of the RPS. And I had a pretty analytical Style about me that could, I believe, help my home state, as I've adopted, um, to figure out where all that renewable is going to actually come from. What are the real resources available? And so I went in and I pitched them. I'm like, I can consult for you. And Malcolm Wolf, who was the director of the agency at the time, said, no, 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 you're going to come and you're going to join us and you're going to become the clean energy director. And so I did. And that's when I met Abby Hopper, and it was just a lot of fun. We went through our first year of Offshore Wind Energy Act, where offshore wind would be created through an OREC, or um, that there would basically be a carve-out for offshore wind for the state of Maryland. And that very first year, our agency was the technical lead for the effort, which was the governor's effort. And Abby Hopper, who's now leading SIA, the Solar Energy Industry Association, was the governor's energy advisor. And that's how we met. And we went through that for a year. We failed miserably the first year, but she kept it going. And I um, happened to be lucky enough to impress the governor enough that he asked me to join the Maryland Public Service Commission. And that's where I spent four years or so on the Maryland Public Service Commission as a commissioner there.
0: I love all these industry names that, you know, are very well known now, especially Abby. I I have interviewed her for this podcast as well. So what's it like working together now that you're both CEOs of these big trade organizations?
1: Oh, it's a hoot. (laughs) I adore Abby. I think she's fabulous. And, um, you know, I think if you're, you're in an, in a singular industry long enough, like the energy industry, it is a very small world. And so you, you get to know folks from early on and when you're all just kind of starting out with a startup or what have you, and then you kind of work your way through the ranks. And so it's, it's a lovely experience because solar and storage have so much to complement each other about, right? And so it's, it's even easier when the lead of the trade association for solar is, is a friend. And I consider her a dear friend. When we worked in state government, we worked for different agencies. And it's similar to that now, but we're just in the trade association world, right? We we know and trust each other's motivations, and I understand where she's trying to go, and she understands where I'm trying to go. And so it's a very, I think, symbiotic relationship. I I enjoy it thoroughly.
0: I think that both industries are in very good hands. So how did you come to be CEO of Energy Storage Association then? Again, I think... (laughs) Like much of my
1: career, I'm, I'm pretty lucky. I, you know, I've tried to be as honest and straightforward and forthcoming as possible with everyone I know, and I try to maintain long-term relationships. And in part, I think my arriving here had to do with some of the relationships I've made throughout my years in the energy industry. But also, this is just such the right time, and I happen to be looking for what was next and we, I had been focused at the Alliance to Save Energy in my very previous job after I left the commission. I've been focused especially in, and especially interested in their work on system efficiency. So making the entirety of the electric grid more efficient. And what does that mean? It's not just you know energy efficiency behind the meter, it's not just uh, decarbonization of the grid It is all of the above, and energy storage in the last, I would say, five years has really become commercially viable as being the central hub to all of that. Energy storage, in my mind, as I was seeing it and seeing all this evolve, is really sort of, yes, it enables solar and wind and other non-dispatchable resources, but it also helps with demand response. It helps with system efficiency overall. It helps utilities be more efficient about about uh, their generation and distribution of electricity. It helps with the inflexible resources of coal and nuclear and, and, and to make those more flexible, that was it. That was really exciting. And so when I got a call um, from one of the board members at the time to talk to them about taking Energy Storage Association to the next level, I didn't hesitate. I got on the next plane and went and met with folks and, and here I am.
0: I love it. And it's been a year now?
1: This week. It's a year. I can't year. believe it.
0: Congratulations!
1: Yeah. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Storage industry is experiencing unprecedented growth, and they are becoming more and more mainstream and more and more recognized, not just by utilities, but solar developers, other energy uh, project developers, um, IPPs, it's being recognized as a real tool in terms of making the grid more efficient and making it more sustainable. It helps with making it more affordable for consumers. It's got all of these elements and it's beginning to be recognized by the many, many stakeholders in the electric industry. And it's really exciting. Even regulators are beginning to see, like, you know, they hadn't contemplated it before. To be able to talk to my ex-colleagues about what storage can help in their states is just a really exciting time.
0: I love that, and I, I want to touch on several things that you mentioned. First of all, you said you know with your your colleagues and how you know you try to uh, be honest with everybody and to keep those relationships because you really never know who you'll end up working with again in your career. So I think that's wonderful <laughs> advice. <laughs> also, you know you you mentioned working with Abby and working with SIA, and we spoke at the Energy Storage Association conference this year in Boston, and I just felt like I was seeing solar plus storage, solar plus storage everywhere, even though storage Mm. is compatible with wind and, and other energy sources. So why do you think that we're hearing so much with solar plus storage in particular, what opportunity do you see with those two technologies?
1: Well, I think there's opportunities for solar plus storage on both sides of the customer meter, but one of the things you're hearing and seeing most about this solar plus storage phenomenon is really a lot about the behind the meter side, right? So the idea that folks at the residential level or commercial level want to install solar, it doesn't make them fully independent yet. So they still have times when the sun's not shining, but if you can store that, if you can decouple the element of time from when you generate and when you use it. It's a whole new level of energy independence for end users. And so it's a a really exciting time because the prices have come down astronomically in the last, say, five years or so. And so it's now a commercially viable option It's being adopted and understood more by regulators and lawmakers. In California, that whole idea of offering residential storage along with solar has been a really exciting move. And then generally, you're seeing much more residential storage come up, and you're seeing a lot of that being coupled with solar. So, for example... Just last quarter, we released with Greentech Media Research and ESA quarterly report for Q1 2018, the residential energy storage market reached record heights at 36 megawatt hours of grid-connected, just residential energy storage systems in the first three months of this year, which is equivalent to the amount of residential storage deployed in the last three quarters. It's pretty
0: awesome. So definitely a, a lot of, of opportunity there. But then also, you know, I think at least in, um, you know, my world coming from solar publication, wind publications, we do hear a lot about energy storage in relation to renewables. But what other applications are there out there where, where you're seeing energy storage play out?
1: Right. It's not just solar plus storage, but it's also storage plus wind. But it's storage and the grid. That is the biggest play that we see happening these days. It addresses both short-term and long-term uncertainty grid issues. This idea about resilience, you know, it's kind of a buzzword lately, but I think it's a really important aspect of how to improve resilience of the grid, specifically because storage decouples that element of time from generation and, and demand. And by doing that, it allows more flexibility in operators' ability to sort of manage the grid, manage micro interruptions, to ride through any generation outages, to be able to provide voltage VAR support, to be able to provide you know, frequency regulation, which is such an important product in the PJM market. It can provide congestion relief for transmission. You can avoid transmission upgrades and costly dis- uh, distribution level upgrades. Storage has a play at every level of the grid, including behind the meter for residential customers and also for commercial and industrial. I mean, the savings from a manufacturing facility, um, being able to control their peak and therefore not see the peak demand charges that are often set up for an entire year is pretty helpful for keeping costs low, not just for, for their operational costs, but ultimately the products that they're putting out.
0: Definitely, very good points, especially, you know, when we're in a period where there's such a high demand for energy, and then, you know, we've had natural disasters, and to keep the lights on definitely play an important part um, on the grid. Yeah, I think that's a
1: really important point that you're making. I I love that you point that out, that it's, this isn't just about sort of the regular operations. This is also about being able to uh, react to grid outages, or maybe even avoid them right so this is about resilience not just reliability consumers want more reliability but they also want more resilience and when i say resilience i'm talking about not just the ability for utilities to withstand you know outages to stop outages from happening but the ability to recover from them quickly and as they're doing that you can put storage locationally in certain places that allow you to come back from the grid more quickly or allow you to prop up the grid where it's needed. And it's that flexibility that storage offers to respond quickly to like micro interruptions during the normal operations or going on through external disruptions for longer periods. That's the important element that consumers are more increasingly demanding. They want a disruption-proof grid. And we talk about this a little bit in our uh, Vision white paper. It's called 35 by 25, um, where we um, talk about consumer demands for more electricity. The cost of their outages are going up because as more and more of our daily operations of our lives rely on electricity, there's a cost associated with that. And so we talk about this in our 35 by 25 vision document where we see 35 gigawatts of new storage coming online by 2025. And we think it's going to be amazing for not just operational savings, but it's going to help bring cleaner air. It's going to create more jobs. There's going to be more consumer engagement to help modernize the grid. Um, we're pretty excited about it.
0: It's definitely exciting. And I mean, I, I love your passion and I, I love that you know, energy storage Makes sense, but I, I know, and you say that con- consumers are demanding it, and you did talk a little bit about how you know, you're know you speaking a- around the country, trying to encourage policy development and regulatory structure. So I'm kind of wondering, how is that going? Talked about California has a wonderful storage-friendly policy. How are you seeing it play out? Do you feel like people are, are getting it, getting house storage can help better the grid? How's it
1: going just immediately made me think that I'm on A-list on Southwest now. So it's going really great.
0: You're putting you're put in the hours. <laughs> I do a lot hours, of traveling. Yeah.
1: I am totally putting in the hours. It's hilarious. But how it's going, I think it's, I think it's pretty amazing. We've had almost 20 states take some action in the last 18 months, either from a regulatory perspective or a legislative perspective, to do a number of things, either to set targets, or to remove barriers. And we think both are important. Yes, you need sort of a credible and fact-based target in order to know for for energy storage businesses to understand what the policy landscape, where they can play. But even more important is to remove the regulatory barriers that exist. In some states that consider their long-term plans for how they're gonna develop the grid, they don't even look at storage. And that's been changing lately, and that's been really satisfying to see. And it's not that states haven't considered it because they didn't want to. It's just it hasn't come up. It hasn't been, you know, it's only in the last five years or so that it's really been a commercially viable application for utilities and independent power producers and developers to to put forth. So we're seeing a lot of change in the rules for storage. We're going around to make sure that regulators, for example, use updated modeling in their proceedings that use the right price, the cost structures for what storage is. Because if you use four-year-old data, you're pricing yourself out of the market, right? The prices are coming down for storage quite quickly. We're trying to make sure that people understand that it's important you use the most up-to-date publicly available data possible. That this is no longer the the time to be looking at modeling that is 12 data points of once a month, what is your peak? People are looking sub hourly now. And we really encourage that to look at the minutia and the detail because that's going to make a difference in being able to save costs for consumers in the end.
0: Yeah, that's a a really good point. Just the rate that things are changing and and all those details really do matter. It's It's a good time for big data and holding in all that information to make business decisions right now that we have the data why not use it to our advantage and
1: use it to press down costs for for electricity for consumers
0: absolutely so besides maybe looking at you know data a little more closely what are some other things that the industry can do to be successful and help further energy storage wow that's an awesome question we talk about this in
1: our um, 35 by 25 vision also is uh, we have a set of recommendations or a call to action, if you will, for legislators, for regulators, and for utilities. So for legislators, it's really take a look at some impact studies. There are some great companies out there that do, that do this. They look at what the impact of putting more storage on the grid could be in terms of costs and benefits. And based on those impact studies, we think legislators should consider enacting procurement targets or mandates, however you want to call it, potato, potato. I think to set a long-term policy goal for storage will encourage the storage market to enter jurisdictions. The next thing is for regulators, again, establish clear rules for storage. Like, first of all, allow it to be considered in your long-term planning. Some states' regulatory rules have specific technologies called out, and because they don't specifically call out storage, it's just an oversight, right? So just fix that so that so that we can move into the state and and make sure that they have that updated data to consider when they're doing the modeling. And the third is for utilities. This is a really interesting part that we're we're looking into how we can help with this, but when they're doing their integrated resource planning to propose to regulators to expand that to include storage, but also update the total approach to how they classify the asset. Because energy storage is not necessarily a generation asset. It's not solely a transmission or a distribution asset. It can be all three in a single asset. And so when utilities go and look at their planning for their investments, they look at it in silos. So the generation groups looks at, at, at what they can invest the transmission group looks at what they can invest, and the distribution group looks at what they can invest. What we're suggesting is if you look across all three of those silos and you sort of update your, your approach to it and you look at it more holistically, you can get value on all in all three of those buckets from a single asset. And that's, again, going to save consumers money. And that's a big shift. So we're looking into how we can support utilities in their planning to not only just use updated numbers and use correct numbers but look at it differently look at it from the entire ecosystem of electric utility planning
0: i love that just kind of change your perspective a little bit a little bit broader yeah that's exactly it last couple questions are just fun what's the best thing about being ceo of esa and the hardest or most challenging besides making a list and having to fly so much That's actually both on the fun and the hardest, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> the best
1: part. I've been in the on energy industry for quite a long time. And to be able to get out and speak to my old colleagues and meet also new friends, talk to them about their area of the energy industry. And I'm not talking about like just electric utility stuff. I'm talking about, you know, solar people and, and wind people and the gas developers, you know, GE Power and, and Phila and all of these kind of cool companies that are coming into the storage business to hear everyone's different perspective and see where storage kind of fits in the center of that, that hub of the energy ecosystem is so super fun. And I love just kind of geeking out with people about how we can change frameworks to, to make it all better, to improve the system itself. That is totally so much fun. And I'm the CEO. So I get to tell myself when I travel, as long as it fits within my budget.
0: <laughs> <Nice>. um,
1: so, <laughs> So that's pretty cool. I love it. I love just hanging out and talking to people about where they're coming from and seeing how I might be able to help or my members might be able to help. That's cool. The hardest, the hardest and also part of the most fun is that there's a lot of attention being paid to energy storage as a potential resource lately. And so, one of the hardest things is making sure that people understand the facts around energy storage, what it is and what it is not. Some folks say it's a miracle cure. It's not, but it's a really great tool. It's not necessarily the Holy Grail because the Holy Grail was never found. Energy storage is right here, and it's a pretty exciting tool to use, but there are a lot of details around it that need to be paid attention to so that So that the messaging doesn't get out beyond what the capabilities
0: are. Yeah, so know know the facts and know the applications. Yeah, and use it wisely. And then I know you devote so much of your time to what you do and you love what you do. But what do you like to do when you're not focused on energy storage? Oh, my gosh. Well, first of all,
1: sit around with family and friends and have dinners. I love cooking dinners.
0: Oh, yes. I
1: also have this crazy penchant for DIY stuff. Oh yeah! Like yeah. Oh, I totally love to do it. So, I actually totally redid my powder room. I had a little bit of a temper tantrum, and I ripped <laughs> <laughs> over something, and I just ripped the hell out of my bathroom. Mm. I took it down to the subfloor and the studs, and I completely rebuilt it. And that like felt was totally outside my professional life. I called a plumber to make sure I was within code, but other than that, I completely redid it, and I love doing that you kind did, of stuff. You if did I have to.
0: drywall and all that,
1: yeah, I, I did. I did the drywall, I did the tiling, I put the floor in, I put shiplap on the walls, which was so much fun. <laughs> um, I put wallpaper on the top part of it, like. Me and YouTube were great friends.
0: Right? YouTube is the best. Uh, so, so I just moved into a new apartment and I've, I really value that kind of knowledge too. So my drain wasn't working and I wanted to take a bath so bad and it wasn't holding water. And so I just went on YouTube and thank goodness there are people out yep. there that post those kind of solutions and I fixed it and I totally enjoyed my bath and that stuff is so fulfilling. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's great. It is so fulfilling. Well, i did to talk to you about food and home improvement all day. I, I do appreciate your time Kelly it's been a lot of fun thank you so much for speaking with me
1: thank you so much for the conversation it's been
0: a blast this has been another edition of Ask a Bet join us each month as is ISPW editor Kathy Zip bringing you the unique perspectives and insights of those who have spent a decade or more in solar thanks for listening to the Solar Power World podcast Join us online for more podcasts, videos, and great editorial content at solarpowerworldonline.com. And don't forget to share your thoughts on social media. Catch you next month.